Temporary was produced on the lands of the Bijigal, Gadigal, Nungar, Warujuri, and Karuna peoples whose sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and those who are yet to emerge. The stories of people seeking asylum are supposed to end. When you arrive in this country in search of safety, you want your journey to be over. But in Australia, people who arrive by boat are seldom able to finish their story. Thousands of men and women have been stuck in offshore detention centers for years, waiting to start their lives anew. But there's another group of asylum seekers, a group whose stories you haven't heard yet. These men and women are in a different kind of detention, one that isn't defined by fences or islands or security officers, but by uncertainty, by a system that prevents people from finding a resolution, a system that keeps people in limbo. Right now, there are 30,000 people who arrive by boat, living with us in our communities, but forced to live on visas that expire every few years, not knowing if and when they will be sent back to persecution. For the University of New South Wales and Guardian Australia, I'm Sasan Kim Simang, and this is Temporary. My childhood was happy. We were living in a in a village covered with mountains, rivers. We we used to get lots of snow in, in the winter. Summer was pretty. This is Zaki. It was a nice town. So the early part of Zaki's life is pretty straightforward. He's just a regular kid, playing soccer, living an ordinary life like so many kids around the world. Before people become displaced, this is exactly who they are. Their sons, their daughters, their middle children, they're people we know. But I think my teenager life is taken away from me. And then there's this moment where they lose control of their narrative. It was around 2011, uh, which the security situation was getting worse in Afghanistan. Getting news out of Afghanistan, and there has been an attack in the capital, Kabul. Taliban were getting more into power. They were taking over provinces. Many armed groups operate here, and they sometimes fight over control of strategic swathes of land. So if Taliban find you, where, which they will. Kidnapping is a long-standing issue that mainly involves Afghans who are abducted and held for ransom. They find any documents with you that proves that you're one of those, if you have any of those titles, and they just behead you on the spot. They are marginalized, discriminated against, and persecuted. The Hazara people. We are Muslim, but we are Shia, which put another layer into discrimination towards us. They fear for their lives every day because Sunni extremists consider the mostly Shiite group heretics and target them with precision and regularity. Life was getting really hard. Zaki's father was a doctor, and he was well-respected and loved in the Hazara community. But the Taliban did not look kindly on local doctors like Zaki's father, who accepted help from foreign governments and international NGOs in order to bring modern medicine to their small rural town. In my dad's case, we were accused of working with international forces, which means that 
we have to pay a punishment, and punishment is normally a blood. Zaki had not even turned 16 yet, and his father was kidnapped by the Taliban, and they never saw him again. Uh, so a country like Afghanistan, especially the rural areas, if a family is doing something wrong, the family, the whole family is acu- will be accused. It got to a point where mom was, couldn't be protective of me anymore. She did try for a couple of months and tried everything she could. Although she's not sure where her son's going to go, she knows that he won't survive if he stays. One day she came home and she was... She was happy, but she was really sad. I never seen mom in that situation where she was happy and she was crying and she was giving me hugs. And she was telling me that she found this people that could smuggle me out of Afghanistan. And I was like, yeah, that's good then, mom. And she was like, no, uh, they are saying that it's very risky. Um, there's a 90% chance that you will die before getting to a safe country. And she was saying this could be could be the last night that we're spending together um, because you're off tomorrow. When you're just a teenager and you're forced to leave your family, you don't choose when you leave. You leave when you have to. And for me, that was the thing. Like, if I stay in Afghanistan, I will be dead, no matter sooner or later. But if I do make it, I will survive. So the next morning they came and was a man that took me away from my family and took me to the airport. The night before he leaves, Zaki spends all night awake, looking at his siblings, looking at his mom, realizing that he may never see them again. I didn't sleep that night, I guess. I was just looking at my siblings and my mom for the whole night, and mom was trying to encourage me to go to bed because I have a long journey ahead. But for me, it was like, this could be last time I'm seeing everybody. So the next morning, Zaki leaves. Um, Yeah, and then we head to the airport. They smuggled me to India. And then that that was where my journey started. So Zaki gets on a plane. He doesn't know where he's going, but his safety is now in the hands of people smugglers. They beat me. Didn't feed me for days and nights. Just me in a very tiny room with a toilet in it. I didn't see sun. I can't even remember for how many days I was in. One day they opened the door and they took me out of the room and I couldn't see. My eyes were like blind. Um, they were saying, okay, we're going to the airport. And by then I didn't know like how many days I was in that room and how many nights. It starts to feel like Zaki is stuck in a loop. Within a few hours I was in Malaysia and the same thing happened. And because Zaki has been through so much, it's easy to forget that he's just a kid. It's like, okay, what if I die here, you know? Like, I don't have enough food and I don't have enough water. Yeah, um, yeah, I was kind of like counting my moments that when I'm going to die. He doesn't know how long he's been held, but eventually Zaki is pulled out of that room and he's told to walk. We then we had to walk for hours to get into the boats. We are there we're saying you have to walk, otherwise if you can't walk, we'll leave you here and you will die. And they are walking through jungle. And you're seeing these people's body and bones of humans. 
Um, and they were saying, look, if, if you, you can't walk, you're done. We'll not stop and wait for you. So you have to walk days and nights without like proper food or water. And they walk and they walk and eventually the jungle ends and it's beach. And for the first time in his life, Zaki sees the ocean. And then they got us to a shore where we had to catch a boat. Zaki is herded onto this big boat. I was squashed like between people. I couldn't move at all. As they get on the boat, someone says, this trip is supposed to take 24 hours. I'm like, okay, it's a short 24 hours. I can make it. The body started moving on and the rain started and the sea got windy, almost super windy, where the boat was going really crazy up and down with the waves. I was scared to find where I think, I was thinking the boat will break, like it will break because there were so many people on it and the sea was super windy. Anyhow, like we met that night and by 10 or 9, the boat stopped. My brain went to shock, I couldn't, I couldn't feel anything. I couldn't move. Every, everywhere you see was water. That whole thing went for five days and nights before we were rescued by the Australian Navy. After a number of days at sea, the Australian Navy takes Zaki and the rest of the asylum seekers to Christmas Island. The next day, the immigration officer came and said, there is a phone, you can call your family and let them know that you're here and you're safe. Finally, Zaki is on dry land and he gets to talk to his mom. And yeah, I called mom after probably would have been like three, three to two months since the last time that I talked to her. And then she, you know, burst into tears and she was so emotional and crying and crying like... Yeah, I made it. I'm safe. It's over now. Yeah, for her, I was dead already. Asylum seekers who arrived at this time found themselves in detention camps. We we were super happy that we made this journey, and then every day living in a detention center was another scary moment for us. There were messages blaring on video screens saying, you're not welcome here. My name is Scott Morrison, and I'm the Australian Minister for Immigration and Border Protection. Australian Immigration Minister Scott Morrison sending a message to asylum seekers detained in... There were posters by Border Force officials. And a warning, some viewers may find this footage pretty confronting. Everywhere you go, there was like, you came to Australia in the wrong time. You have been brought to this place here because you have sought to illegally enter Australia by boat. In the kitchen when you were getting food or in the playground, everywhere, they well, couldn't hide, they couldn't ignore them. There are new rules in place under this new government. The message was really clear. If you have a valid claim, you will not be resettled in Australia. You're not welcome here. You came to Australia in the wrong time. We are transferring to Narrowmanus Island. We just don't know when. They will never be settled in Australia. You will never live in Australia. There's this feeling that he and other asylum seekers are being treated like criminals. If you choose not to go home, then you will spend a very, very long time here. 
When a politician says, you should think carefully about your next move, implying that you could just turn around and come back to where you came from, frankly, that's ridiculous. A refugee is not someone who leaves by choice. You should tell anyone else you know who seeks to follow you that they should not do it, or they'll find themselves in a similar circumstance, or much, much worse. For Zaki and thousands of others, turning back is not an option. No matter how bad it gets in detention, the fear of what forced them from their homes remains. Don't be too excited. You're not in Australia. You're just on a waiting list. They just have to wait. Keeping asylum seekers in detention is not how Australia has always done things. And to understand how Zaki found himself in detention, we have to look back at the history of Australia's immigration policy. This is Ben Doherty. He covered immigration for Guardian Australia. Immigration used to be seen as a nation-building part of this country. It was a positive. Without immigration, the future of the Australia we know will be both uneasy and brief. Australia helped draft and was one of the early signatories to the Refugees Convention. And the community began to change. Australian society began to change immensely in those post-war years. In the mid-1970s, asylum seekers begin arriving by boat fleeing the Indochina conflict. Almost 56,000 Vietnamese refugees made the journey between 1975 and 82. And Australia accepts those refugees. We begin to see the Vietnamese community flourish in Australia. A watershed moment for Australian multiculturalism under Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser. The white Australia policy had ended just two years earlier. And this is different, Ben, from the earlier period because the refugees who are arriving aren't from Europe, right? We're seeing it changing Australia. We're seeing people come from all over the world to this country to change the face of this country. We have the Tiananmen Square massacre where Bob Hawke allowed Chinese students to stay. When I walked off the dais, uh, uh, a senior bureaucrat said to me, Prime Minister, you can't do that. I said, I've done it the nature of immigration to Australia begins to change profoundly. So around the world in multicultural societies, whenever there's an opening where people you know, are welcomed and there's suddenly a large number of people moving into a community or into a country, there's always a backlash. And so do we begin to see this happening after the sort of Bob Hawke era? There's been a steady decline in Australian attitudes towards immigration. In 2001, September 11 changes a lot of the way Australia views immigration and the way it views its openness to the world. Now to some breaking news just through and CNN is reporting tonight that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Centre. In the context of the 2001 election, we have the Tampa affair. The Tampa was undoubtedly a detonator issue and it was a detonator issue because the Prime Minister used it intelligently and ruthlessly where more than 400 Afghan asylum seekers are held on a freight ship that Australia refuses to allow into the country. I can't remember one single issue which has more transformed politics than the decision taken by the Howard government late August this year to repel by military means all future boat uh, asylum seekers and boat refugees. This leads to John Howard introducing the Border Protection Bill and he declares, we will decide who comes this to this country, country. And the circumstances in which they come. Quite suddenly, Australia's attitudes towards people arriving in this country changes and changes dramatically. And Australia prides itself on being a tolerant society, but many people believe it's a racist one. 
And it really finds its key expression in Hansenism. I and most Australians want our immigration policy radically reviewed and that of multiculturalism abolished. Australia begins to erode the protections of the international refugee law it helped write 40 years earlier. And one of the ways they do this is through temporary protection. Temporary protection in these circumstances is unique to Australia. It's not what happens everywhere else in the world where protection is permanent. It was actually One Nation's Pauline Hanson who suggested that refugees should only ever get temporary protection. This is Jane McAdam, director of the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law. The coalition, who was in government at the time, thought this was a, a terrible idea and they said it would just be unconscionable for us to do this. Can you imagine the trauma and the, almost the, the torture of, of telling people that you can only remain here on a, a temporary basis? It would be terrible for integration and, and for people to get on and, and rebuild their lives. And yet the following year, the coalition did introduce temporary protection visas. Pauline Hanson has been talking it up and now it seems just about everyone is hopping on the lower immigration bandwagon. Philip Raddick, welcome to Nightline. Pleasure, Paul. Well, what are we to make of Pauline Hanson's claim that you are now starting to listen to what she's been saying? And they've been a central plank of their refugee policy ever since. Well, I mean, she can claim what she likes. The fact is we made a decision based upon what we believe is in the national interest. All of this was part of the, the coalition government's crackdown on people seeking asylum, who they labelled as illegals, as a threat to national security, as a threat to the integrity of Australia's borders. This idea of temporary protection is introduced and these temporary protection visas are introduced. Is it working well? Temporary protection visas didn't work. They didn't discourage people from claiming asylum in Australia. And the impact on the people who were given these visas is hugely damaging. People experience massive amounts of stress and anxiety and re-traumatisation. They're forced into this cycle of applying and reapplying and reliving the trauma, reliving the persecution that they fled, and they're never able to properly start their lives anew. We saw when John Howard's coalition government first introduced temporary protection visas, very high rates of mental illness. And ultimately, people were given permanent protection then. 90% of the people who are given temporary protection visas at this time are ultimately given permanent protection visas because TPVs just didn't work. It was just unsustainable to have this rolling three-year temporary protection visa process. So over the next five years, there's an explosion in the refugee crisis around the world. It was the year of people power, of revolution. Something I've never seen People are seeking asylum, not just in Australia, but in many parts of the world. And the, the crisis is driven by conflicts in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in places like Sri Lanka. And bloodshed that doomed dictators. No one's going home. No one's going to go home. We see around the world, Syria, we see the Arab Spring happens. By social media, protests erupt in Algeria, then Yemen. And so suddenly... People need to leave very difficult circumstances in order to go to places of safety. And so it's no surprise in that sense that uh, Australia begins to really feel the push of a significant refugee crisis. In Australia, it's a fraught and fractious debate. No one has clean hands and nothing is uncomplicated. 
Now, a couple of weeks back, uh, Scott and I launched Operation Sovereign Borders. We announced Operation Sovereign Borders. An increasingly aggressive immigration debate has dominated Australian politics for decades. Which is our policy to stop the boats and to prevent new arrivals. But 2013 is the stop the boats election, and basically that is Tony Abbott's policy to get the coalition back into power. Uh, Today, we announce our policy to deal with the old arrivals. He wins office and temporary protection visas come back. Uh, That's to say the 30,000 people who have come illegally by boat and who have not yet been processed uh, by the... We're talking about around 30,000 people. These people were subject to the same detention and processing policies as everybody who got sent to Manus or Nauru. But because those centres were either full at the time or not ready to detain asylum seekers, the Abbott government allowed them to be settled in the community. People who come here illegally by boat uh, will get temporary protection visas. These temporary protection visas, or TPVs, only lasted three years. And some people, while they're waiting to apply for a temporary protection visa, were put onto what's called a bridging visa. And these could be very short as short as 28 days. And during that period, and even after that period for for some, they were living in in limbo. So if they hadn't worked five years earlier, why did they come back? Because they're politically popular. The rhetoric around asylum now is around illegals arriving in Australia. We see the Immigration Department transformed into the Australian Border Force, and all of a sudden we hear this militarised national security language around the issue of people seeking asylum. So I was in Tasmania for about two months and then they were started giving away bridging visas to people to live in the community. So bridging visas back then was mean that you can live in the community temporary before you will be transferred to Naraman Asylum. Remember Zaki? He arrived in 2012 in the middle of this huge political firestorm. His timing couldn't have been worse. So we were kind of waiting every night that when when it will come because we were told that they will take they will take us one night. It will be midnight, they wouldn't give us a notice, they will just come and collect us. Zaki and 30,000 others found themselves frozen in time. You were not allowed to lodge an application or claim asylum. They weren't even allowed to apply for asylum. So you had this policy, if you came after this time, you cannot seek asylum in Australia. That was it. Like, you were in the community for no time frame. You couldn't do anything. Your life was on hold. They were out in the community, but for all of this time, asylum seekers like Zaki had a constant fear that they could be taken back into detention at any time. We were waiting for the immigration to come and pick us at any moment. And they become known as the legacy caseload. We were free in a way that you were free to leave, not have security guard, but we weren't free mentally because we don't know how long you have in the community. So we were kind of, our life was put on hold. So we never felt like you're free, free. We always, like, we had this feeling that we don't know what's next, what's tomorrow. The coalition government has been in power since 2013. And this whole time, people have been living in limbo, going from bridging visa to bridging visa. A lot of these people arrived in Australia as long ago as 2012. That's eight years ago. A lot has changed. We've had five prime ministers since then, but these people are still waiting. 
When the 2019 election came about, there was a sense that Labour was going to win, and many asylum seekers had hoped that this would mean the end of temporary protection visas and the beginning of being settled here permanently. Tonight, we report from Canberra on the most unlikely and unexpected general election victory in modern Australian history. It feels particularly cruel that the man who was the immigration minister, whose voice greeted people when they arrived in detention centres, the person whose face was on the flyers that Zaki saw when he was on Christmas Island, was Scott Morrison, who has now become the Prime Minister of Australia. I have always believed in miracles. This had a real impact on asylum seekers living in the community. They'd been holding out hope that at least if a Labor government came to power, they would be able to be granted permanent protection. And now I think many of them feel there is no end in sight. We've now reached a point where, during Scott Morrison's term of office, thousands and thousands of these temporary protection visas are going to expire. We're now in the situation where temporary protection visas are coming up for renewal. And that means there are people living here in the community right now in a great deal of distress, not knowing whether they might be sent home, even though they still fear for their safety back home. Even as many, many others have not yet even begun the process of assessment. The stories of people seeking asylum are supposed to have an end. You get to a place of safety, you begin a new chapter in your life, and you put all of that behind you. The stories we're going to hear don't have that neat ending. I wasn't a normal 16 years old boy. I didn't experience the teenager life. Even I was in Australia. That's taken away from me the life of being young and free, not to worry about anything, didn't have that. We know the stories of Nauru and Manus Island, and they're heartbreaking. But the stories of 30,000 people who are living in Australia, under our noses, part of a shadow society of people who don't have the same rights as we do, is a story that hasn't yet been told. My life is temporary, like I don't know what's tomorrow for me. No, my life has been in limbo since I was 16. My life could end tomorrow. Maybe in the next years, I don't know. Yeah, people in my age, I think they have goals and dreams that they, what they want to do in five years or in 10 years. You know, like just a normal human being. For me, it's like, if I have tomorrow, I'll be happy. I can imagine myself in five years and 10 years, but it's not, I know it's not a reality. In the next episode, you'll hear more from Zaki as he tries to build a permanent life based on a temporary visa. Every human being on the earth deserves to have a proper life, a permanent life. Temporary is hosted by me, Sison Kim Simang, and produced by Kara Jensen McKinnon and Miles Herbert, with editorial support from Lauren Martin and Miles Marchioni. Original music composed by Lama Zaharia, mixed and mastered by Ryan Pemberton, with series artwork by Matt Wynn. 
Temporary is a project from the UNSW Center for Ideas and Caldor Center for International Refugee Law, co-produced with Guardian Australia and inspired by the book Refugee Rights and Policy Wrongs by Jane McAdam and Fiona Chong. The podcast is accompanied by a digital storytelling project which further explores the lives of the people interviewed in this series and is linked in the show notes. If this story has raised any issues for you, please know that help is available. Contact Lifeline on 131114.